This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The throne speech will be read right after our show today. It will be followed by the budget and the big question. The only question really is, will there be anything meaningful to address the crisis that is prompting multiple closures in our hospital system? So far, the response has been, this is not a crisis, according to the health minister, Sylvia Jones, that even if an unprecedented number of emergency wards are closing on summer weekends, a time slot that is often extremely busy. Now, the opposition is accusing her of trying to normalize these shutdowns. And the premier's message has been something to the effect of, trust us, we're on it. And this from the people who just won an election promising to get it done. Now, I think this is very much the wrong tone to take at the wrong time. And so it will be interesting to see if we get a re-announcement of previous piecemeal measures to boost hiring and make other improvements or something new and comprehensive. And what do you think? Is that what you are looking for? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And, and I really wonder if people in the audience are, do you feel comfortable that if, uh, you know, God forbid you needed an emergency ward on a weekend in the summer, are you confident that you could get to one that is close to where you are? I don't know about that. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South, Hugh Siegel, a former Senator of Canada, and Howard Hampton, former leader of the Ontario NDP. Hey, guys, thanks for joining us. Hey, good afternoon. Yes. Great to be here, Libby. Okay. Well, uh, let us begin with Hugh. You're also a conservative. Do you think they have to do something completely fresh? I mean, it looks like the budget is mostly a re-announcement. Uh, or can they get away with re-announcements? I don't think they can. And moreover, I mean, there are times in our political history where an issue has appeared to be more intense than it really is. I think this is the opposite. This is one of those times when the reality of the issue, the health care service issue on the ground, is more serious than the government appears to be prepared to admit. And I think that's a huge problem because any time a government says things that is completely opposite to the broad public perception of how things are, it loses its credibility and diminishes its ability to move ahead. I would argue that um, there were systems put in place under previous governments that were meant to help keep the pressure off the hospitals. There was the Family Health Network. There was the Family Health Group that was put together. They were very successful. These were groups of doctors and other healthcare professionals that operated the equivalent of a local clinic that people could go to for something which wasn't an emergency but may have been urgent, could have been managed. The government decided to stop funding those because they were too successful. Too many people were using them. And I think one of the things the government could do is say they're going to revivify and re-support those because that would take some of the pressure off the hospitals. I think the other thing they need to do is put together a uh, something which they have talked about doing, which is the nursing colleges, the um, the departments of nursing education at the universities and colleges, and the hospitals to work on a strategy to massively increase the put-through in a way that is still responsible but gets more people on the ground quickly. And the existing people who are working in the system, the nurses, 
should be getting a bonus for the extra time they've put in. This 1% ceiling, in my view, is criminal of Bill 124. And as long as the government isn't prepared to move away from things which may have made sense before the pandemic, but clearly don't make sense now, their credibility and legitimacy is going to be at question. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, Charles Sousa, former Minister of Finance. Uh, I'm also wondering on this note, I mean, they just got reelected, so presumably there is nothing for them to worry about. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not just that they were moving back on these, uh, health teams. A lot of them are still in place. I know I go to one. Uh, but, um, a lot of people can't get to their doctors in the pandemic. Doc, a lot of doctors still do not want to see patients who want to be seen, who perhaps need to be seen. That's that's a whole other issue there. Yeah, a lot of virtual meetings with doctors as well as with meetings and, and business. People all, you know, went to digital and phone calls. That's how I've had some discussions with my docs in the past for my knee or something of other sorts. Um, but what I'm really interested in is their priorities. I mean, you know, Mr. Doug Ford and the team, they talk a mean game. They talk tough. They, they do what they say the right things. And their throne speech will say a lot of nice things. It's what they do that really matters. And that will really indicate what their priorities are is by what they do. And in some part, it will be part of what the budget will reflect upon. And will they, in fact, provide greater services for the health care? Will they do it with Bill 124? Will they show more fairness? Will they increase ODSP? Will they try to do what they can to, to really enable and lower the cost of living that's being happening as a result of all this inflation? These are unprecedented times. There are unprecedented shortages. There's a lot of disruption. So I'd be interested to see what they'll actually do. This whole notion of getting it done well, what is it that they want to get done? And that'll be reflective in terms of what that budget will say. And, and I have to say that the biggest challenge that I, have, that I had, that I was attacked upon, mostly by the opposition at the time, was a deficit. And how are you going to balance the books? And how are you going to manage to make things sustainable over time? Well, the fact of the matter is they have a structural deficit, and they don't seem to have any real plan to improve upon that. And they're doing so at the expense of those on the front line. That's how it's being viewed right now because they're investing all of this money, you know, into transportation and some other business initiatives, which may trickle down, but certainly is not providing support that people need right now. Well, it's interesting uh, that you say that. I think that at this point, people don't really care about the deficit, quite frankly. Howard Hampton, are they just burying their heads in the sand or thinking, hey, we, we don't have to worry about getting reelected for a long time? I think uh, it's a little bit of both. I think, uh, you know, people are thumping their chest saying we got reelected and we got reelected with an even larger majority. And so there's a feeling that uh, you know, the current government can ride this out. I think they're terribly mistaken. Uh, and I think this is really going to become an issue in the conservative heartland, in smaller cities, smaller town, rural Ontario. Um, the fact of the matter is, in many places in Ontario, uh, it has been very difficult to get to see your family doctor for some time. It's not unusual. You'll wait three, four, five months to get an appointment with your family doctor. And so the emergency room isn't per se an emergency room anymore. It's where you go because you can't wait three months to see your family doctor or you can't wait four months to see your family doctor. And that's the case in my hometown right now. And that's the case in many places across northern Ontario and and rural Ontario. You remember when the government brought out their budget just before the election? Yep. And and some people looked at it and said, whoa, uh, in real dollars, this government is cutting health care. Coming out of all of the displacement, all of the chaos of COVID, of postponed surgeries, of postponed uh, uh, processes, et cetera, et cetera. What the government's really doing when you factor in inflation, when you factor in a growing population, and when you factor in an aging population – in real dollars, they're cutting health care. And in real dollars, nurses and healthcare workers are out there right now. They feel that their wages are being cut. Factor in inflation, and their wages are being cut. And, and so I think, you know, as a government, they've got this completely wrong. 
If they were smart, they'd stop thumping their chest about we won the election and they get back to work. This is a very serious problem and it has the capacity to become much worse in the, in the months and years ahead. Hugh, what do you think is behind their whole uh, shtick with Bill 124? Last week, the premier said he's not, he's not going to repeal it, um, but it, it won't be a negotiating point after it runs out. I mean, I sort of get that he doesn't want to give away a negotiating point before he negotiates. I sort of, get that, but it seems like it's become this big thing and there's absolutely no way that uh, they, let alone anyone else, the hospitals, let alone anyone else in the economy can get away with 1% when we have nearly 9% inflation. So what what do you think is behind this, uh, you know, digging in their heels on this point? Well, I would say it's a combination of two things. I suspect that uh, Treasury, uh, doing what it always does, uh, always warns the um, other ministries, including the Premier, that, you know, if you begin to say yes on this stuff, then the numbers are going to begin to move very quickly. And um, at some point, we're going to have an annual deficit plus a growing debt, which will be unsustainable. Um, And that advice always comes from every Treasury Department and every finance minister, and that's their job, and I respect that. But in the end, the Premier has the obligation to say, look, that may be true, but there's a balance of needs here, and there is simply no Ontarian living who would agree to the following statement. In view of what they have all been through in the last two years, no member of the nursing profession working in Ontario should be allowed, if she's a government employee or in a health care facility, paid for by the province to earn more than 1%. There's not a single human being who would agree with that. I doubt if there's any member of the Conservative Party who would agree with that. And so the Premier has to, I think, come to terms with the fact that, you know, continuity and stability are good Conservative values. But insensitivity to a changing reality that flies in the face of what everybody in the province understands to be intrinsically unfair is simply stupidity, and his numbers can collapse very, very quickly in the face of what Ontarians are concerned about. Charles, you're a former finance minister, so what do you think... We are talking points from now on. Sorry? But it is so true. People want fairness. You know, I mean, it's... It, it's now, admittedly, when you start to negotiate, the province is trying to come and undercut the, the the alarm, they're saying it's inappropriate alarm, it's not crumbling, it's not unprecedented, It's a re- these issues are occurring around the world, they're going to go into negotiations, it's going to be the nurses, then it's going to be others as they go forward. We, at the time when we were there, also limited the uh, the wage increases, but we didn't have inflation. We didn't have this, the stress that we're having now, and we were looking at ways to balance the books while at the same time providing the services and everything that we didn't require. The question is, are they providing the services? Are they investing in these other initiatives that matter to people? And it doesn't seem to be their priority. And the structural deficit is only getting worse if they don't take proper actions in terms of where they spend. They need to invest in education and health care. I get it, in transportation and long-term care. Those things matter. It's perpetual because the moment you increase the one, you're gonna, it'll be uh, for a long period of time. So it'll have a tremendous impact on the bank, on, on, the, on the government's overall budget. I get it. But he was right. No one in their right mind is going to tell someone you can't go earn more than 1% going forward when the inflation, as Howard has mentioned, is at 8 or 7%. Because none of the other unions are doing it. None of the other private sector are doing it. The supply chain's increasing their pricing as well. Everyone's taking a note of the inflation, and they're reacting accordingly. The government has to as well. Uh, Howard, um, you know, what do you make of this? I mean, they're really digging in on this. Uh, is it is it just a matter also that you think it's so adversarial that this is this is the point that uh, that the nurses and unions have been harping on and Doug Ford wants to show that he's, you know, not being bullied? Is it something like that? No, 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 no. Listen, go back. Go back. <laughs> Go back four years uh, uh, in the election campaign. 
And uh, Mr. Ford, uh, uh, he campaigned on, you know, things like uh, buck a beer, uh, that uh, he was going to cut corporate taxes, uh, that, uh, you know, this was the way forward. What happened over the last four years is COVID blew this government off their agenda, as it blew most governments off their agenda. You had to deal with COVID. So you just had to, whatever your agenda was, whatever you campaigned on, you had to park it on the sidelines and you had to deal with that. Now that people feel that COVID is is relenting somewhat, uh, this is a government that says, well, we're right back on our old agenda now, which is uh, cut public sector wages, uh, privatize uh, many services, uh, and uh, cut taxes. And in and I think they are ignoring all of the warning lights that say <laughs> these are not the conditions under which you can do that. And I, I think they're going to create a, a huge problem. I, this is this is really ideological. This is a government that said four years ago they were going to reduce public sector wages. They were going to, uh, you know, that's how they saw the ship being righted. And the other piece of the package was the heavy corporate tax cuts. Well, We've seen the heavy corporate tax cuts. Ontario now has the lowest corporate tax rate in North America, which gives away billions and billions of dollars every year when the corporate sector is doing really well. I mean, Canada as a whole is being criticized by international institutions for not uh, dealing with the super profits that energy companies are making right now, as one example. And the Ford government falls into that, too. So... I think, you know, this is a government that's gone back to the agenda that was elected on four years ago uh, and is saying, you know, since we got reelected, we can ignore things, uh, you know, for, we, can, we can ignore whatever public opposition we're getting on this. We're going to implement our agenda. But uh, this is going to hurt a lot of people, and it is really going to hurt the healthcare system. Now, you know, I think there are people out there who say, as, as a government, they would be very happy to privatize more elements of the healthcare system. In other words, if you think you're waiting too long to see a family doctor, if you're thinking you're waiting too long for emergency services, well, you can go purchase those services privately. I'm not saying that right now, but if you let the system run down so severely, and I think that's where this is headed, there will be people saying, well, let us, let us purchase the services privately then. Right. But I I think that is a political complete non-starter. Uh, Hugh, a couple of notes. Uh, first of all, do you agree they're just returning to an agenda? It, it sort of seems to me that they really, before the pandemic, had a lot of things banked on, on concentrating on bricks and mortar. They're building hospitals, they're building long-term care homes, and Again, less so on the really important part, the the people to staff them. So are they still just kind of stuck on that? Yeah, Libby, I would say that, you know, in the same way as you can misinterpret a minority result, you can also misinterpret a majority result. And I think what the government is doing, and I don't think there's any bad faith in that, I think they are determining that Ontarians voted for the government that was elected four years ago. And that's not what they did. What Ontarians did was vote for a government that, to its credit, appeared to be quite pragmatic during the two years of the uh, pandemic, were prepared to provide financial assistance for people in difficulty who were moving more resources to hospitals and elsewhere to deal with the extra strain caused by the pandemic. It was that pragmatic government that got reelected. The notion that the government that got elected back in '04, which was trying to be a massive reaction on the right to what they alleged was an overdone position on the left by the Wynn administration, is just not true. And I think they're misinterpreting that. And more importantly, the problem they face is as follows. The anti-inflation issue is real. But we have had responses in the past, back in the 70s when we had 18%, inflation and interest rates, where the federal government set up an anti-inflation board, each one of the provinces set up a coordinating body, and they nailed inflation and they reduced it without forcing people like healthcare workers to be massively underpaid. And the premier who's supposed to be, after all, the premier of the senior largest province, should be talking about those sorts of measures on inflation rather than saying the price will be paid by hardworking, overworked, and underpaid nurses. 
Yeah, who are also uh, overwhelmingly women, of course. Uh, you know, um, Charles, uh, one of the other things that strike me strikes me is I'm sure that it is completely not lost on Doug Ford that before he pivoted like this in this practical way in the pandemic, uh, his numbers were tanking. He was not popular. His, they, they kind of muffed really badly at the beginning of their first term in, in 2018. And, uh, does he not remember, you think? Well, I think he remembers all too well. And, uh, he, you know, people have given him a pass. Uh, he made a lot of, uh, decisions that seem to be uh, off the cuff, back of the envelope, shooting from the hip, then backtracking after you realize it was a bad decision, and then he had a lot of backlash. So he had a couple of years of you know back and forth in those initiatives, and um, and he realized, you know, i got to be more caring, a little bit more pragmatic, and he went more to the center, and then he became more endearing, in fact, to, to the public. And people, you know, say, you know what, we're going to give him a second chance. He's not really that bad a guy. He seems pretty normal to us. And and he is actually he's not he's a great he's a nice guy but the the decisions he made were really bad and expensive for the province I mean we had a cap and trade system that was bringing in two and a half billion dollars in revenue that didn't require the 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 you know the person on the street to pay to pay a carbon tax it was already embedded in the system he did away with that for political purposes to have a fight with Justin Trudeau which was un, totally unnecessary but was all politically driven. And so decisions that are election cycle driven are infuriating to me. And I think Doug Ford has recognized that he doesn't require to do that in order to win. And he did win handedly. But to Hugh's point, you know, the, the win in terms of seats were massive, but not a popular vote necessarily. And as a result, he is going to make decisions given his strong majority to put through some of his own personal agenda items. And that does worry me. And that's where we need accountability and a strong opposition. Uh, here's speaking of personal agenda items. So here's something that I saw on Twitter. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure it's even a fair comment, but one of the things that the nursing unions are complaining about is that because of the shortages. There are a lot of agency nurses that are being used to fill gaps. It ends up costing a huge amount more because there's a, a large fee for the middle people and that mer- nurses are going to work at these places because they get uh, better pay. And there was a thing on Twitter saying, uh, well, guess who owns one of these places? It's uh, Mike Harris's wife. Is that uh, fair criticism? It's a bit of a kick in the teeth, uh, regardless of who owns it. Just the fact that the government is still spending if, if equally, if not more, for a nurse to be on the ground makes no sense. And having, having us contract uh, through an agency to hire a nurse who's going to be paid less while we are spending more is so, so wrong. And I, I, I'm infuriated by that, by, by that in, engagement. And sure, there won't be... You know, they're not going to have pensions. They're not going to have other things because they're doing it on a contract basis. But when the banks did it, they were criticized. They were crucified for doing so. And frankly, the government should be as well. Uh, Hugh, do you have a view of that? Is that uh, fair criticism saying, oh, they're throwing lots of business, you know, to Mike Harris's wife? Well, I don't think I don't think anybody's motivated by who may or may not own those private agencies. But the problem is as follows. When the public system is seen to be fiscally incompetent enough to actually be unable to pay nurses appropriately, then hospitals and other administrators are desperate to find some staff, and they will go to these agencies and they'll pay a premium. And that is, uh, just as Charles said, not in the public interest, not in the taxpayer's interest, and not in the long-term interest of the health care system. And look, it's just like, you know, uh, it's a long-term care issue all over again. Um, If all we do is throw money at a problem and don't make any changes, things won't get better. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing time and time again and hoping things will change. Um, What the government should be doing, I think, and it makes perfect sense to say because of what we learned in the pandemic, we have to take a whole fresh look at the healthcare system and how it's financed, we have to take a look at whether the long-term care model that's now in place is the best approach. There's new approaches being taken in Quebec and upstate New York and elsewhere that seem to make more sense. Being opposed to change 
will look like you're opposed to being fair and humane. And no conservative government in any jurisdiction can survive that rap. Uh, Howard, uh, I'm also wondering about the timing, right? You know, we're all used to having a budget come down after the markets close. Uh, but I think the fact that this one is coming at around two o'clock is uh, sort of bolsters the fact that there really isn't going to be anything we don't know about in there. Uh, is are, Will they get away with that? Well, look, there's, there's a time delay in all these things. Okay, I mean, let's just roll back the, the the calendar a bit. One of the things that Doug Ford was criticized for early on as premier was that uh, you know government contracts uh, seemed to be going to friends. That things were done by well, you know, I know him, so this this will be good. Um, so you know, whether it's Mike Harris's wife or somebody else. Okay, that owns a private nursing corporation. I think when the public learns that, in fact, the government pays more under these private nursing contracts than they would pay the nurses that they already employ, I think the people will be upset because what public what knows we've been talking about it for months. Well, it takes a while, especially in the world we live in now, where you have you know you have international chaos. You have chaos south of the border, and you have a certain degree of chaos in Canada. Uh, it takes a while for people to actually uh, get it through their head what's happening here. And, and what's happening is this government appears to be uh, taking the most expensive path and the least efficient path to provide nursing services in Ontario. And at the same time, they are, in effect, uh, when you factor in inflation, cutting the wages of the nurses and the healthcare workers who are already there and who've done yeoman work over the last three years. And I think when the public does get that full picture, I think uh, then you'll see uh, a lot more public concern and a lot more attention being paid to this. But I don't think the public has all of the pieces, has seen all of the pieces yet and know how they interconnect. Charles, uh, there are people who are saying they, they're saying heads have to roll. It has to be, uh, the bureau- bureaucrats who actually run things. And also, uh, there's a lot of criticism of hospital CEOs saying, you know what? They're paid huge bucks to run a hospital. And if they can't do it, they should be fired. Is, hmm. is that something that has to happen? And it's pervasive across the system. It's not just in healthcare. And there seems to be uh, people are throwing their hands up. They're frustrated. Bureaucrats that I've spoken to in the past year or so, they can't seem to wait to get out. Like, we're done. People are burnt out. And COVID and, and it's nurses. It's, it's, it's people working in the airports. It's everywhere. People trying to work in any government agency are feeling that they're not being appreciated. They're being limited by what they pay. But then the public is saying, hey, you guys have been feeding off the public trough for a long time. You'd actually get paid well. And you have a pension. We don't have that. So there's this constant struggle. And and people, I think, are, are feeling, uh, why do it? And if I can do something on the side and make as much money, if I can work for an agency part-time and still make what I was making before without the headaches, maybe I'll do that. And some nurses and others are choosing to do it that way. It's unfortunate because um, we have some good people in the system. Uh, we have a lack of motivation. Hugh Siegel, uh, I'll ask you the same thing. Should some hospital CEOs who get paid huge amounts of money and and some bureaucrats uh, who are responsible for running the system, should there be firings? Um, I noticed that in New Brunswick, uh, Premier Hicks um, did fire the CEO of a hospital in which uh, someone who was waiting in the emergency room passed away yeah. uh, because of how long they were waiting. And um, and my assessment is that in that particular jurisdiction, it was the uh, conclusion that there was something that hospital CEO should have done or could have been doing to avoid that tragedy. Um, I don't think that the people who run our hospitals uh, or the senior bureaucrats in the system, uh, I don't think we're going to benefit by holding any one of them out as people being individually responsible for what is, after all, a policy imposed on all hospitals by the province. Um, do I think the CEO 
of the hospitals here in Kingston would be delighted if he could pay his nurses more. I think he would be overjoyed. But he's not allowed to do that because of a regulation in place imposed by the province. So I don't think the CEO of the local hospitals are the, uh, are the, are the, are the, are the villains in this. It's the premier who is not prepared to move off an unsustainable position when everybody in the province, including, I suspect, 75% of the members of his own party, think it's about time that change took place. Okay, well, uh, we don't have to wait too long to see if there's anything in there that indicates that kind of movement. And, of course, we'll be talking more about this. Uh, in the meantime, thank you so much, Hugh Siegel, Howard Hampton, and Charles Souza. Good afternoon, everyone. Okay. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, Serena Williams retiring soon. It's a huge development for the world of tennis, the world of sport all together. When we come back, you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one fight back with Libby Snymer on zoomer radio. Welcome back. We have some huge news from the world of tennis, actually from the world of sports, especially women's sports. This morning, we learned that the great Serena Williams will soon retire, hinting that will be after this year's U.S. Open, a Grand Slam she won for the first time in 1999 as she went on to win a total of 23 Grand Slams. There have been lively debates about whether she's the greatest athlete of all time, let alone the greatest woman tennis player. She is a trailblazer, not just for women, but for black women and people of color in the sports. And this news comes as she is competing here in Toronto at the National Bank Open. Lucky us. Uh, if you have something to say about Serena and her retirement, she's just a little shy of her 41st birthday, by the way. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'd like to welcome Carl Hale, Termin- Tournament Director for the National Bank Open, and Simon Bartram, Head Coach of the Toronto Lawn Tennis Club. He also coaches for Tennis Canada and has been working with two young women who are playing or have been playing in the open. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, Libby. Yeah, absolute pleasure, Libby. Okay, well, let's begin with Carl, because this is happening in the middle of, of your tournament. Uh, what's your reaction to this announcement? Well, I think it was expected. Everybody knew that uh, the retirement was imminent, um, but we're really excited to have her here. It's the last time. She'll be at the National Bank Open and playing tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. So we expect a very warm reception for her from all the fans and, you know, wishing her well in, in that match. Well, I'm glad to hear that it's an evening match. <laughs> okay. uh, Simon, uh, you have coached a lot of uh, young girls and, and, and women. How would you say, how important is Serena's example? Well, I can't imagine she's anything other than a, a, a huge uh, example and uh, influence for every, all the players I've coached. My goodness, she's she's 40 years old. She's been doing this forever. Uh, her and her sister both have been um, uh, have been the, the forefront of the women's tour for so long and been so good for so long. They are um, and they're and, and Serena's accomplishments are as, as you mentioned at the outset: 23 Grand Slam titles. She's been chasing that 24th. You know, to tie Margaret Court's record for for a few years now, and we're sort of all cheering her on to get that to happen. And it just seems like, you know, here I guess she's giving herself one more shot at the U.S. Open, perhaps. But um, yeah, I mean, all the all, all the, to answer your question, yeah, all the girls are they just marvel at her level um, for so many years, and it's a, it's 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 an amazing level. She plays at a very high level, has has played at a very high level for a long time. Uh, I want to get to that 24 thing. Uh, I'm wondering, is it is it a bigger deal for pundits and people who follow tennis than for her? Because I was I was reading the story, which came out in Vogue, by the way, and uh, she looks fabulous in a blue dress uh, in the picture that they showed with it. Uh, and she said, you know what? Um, uh, I want to play in the U.S. Open and I don't know if I'm ready, but I'll have fun in the tune-up. So she seemed kind of relaxed about that, Carl. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, you know, it's this, this time in her career where, you know, with her daughter, she wants to travel with her daughter and have her watch her play and uh, do the best she can in these few lead-up tournaments. Um, she really loves Toronto. She's been playing the event for over 20 years. And, uh, you know, we're just everybody's really expected the news but saddened by it as well because she is such an iconic and she does transcend sports. You know, i.e., this news came out in Vogue versus on the sports flyers. So uh, just just big, big news and the tournament's just really buzzing. Uh, the, the player lounge is full of chatter about it and everybody, you know, is, is sad to see her. She was practicing this morning really early and the courts were packed with just the players watching her, let alone the fans. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, you think about things that are really incredible. The last time she won a Grand Slam was in 2017, and she was pregnant, Simon. <laughs> I don't believe, I know, I, I can remember the chatter at that time, too. Um, yeah, a, a, an amazing accomplishment, like, a, again, um, to what she's what she's been able to do, um, and and uh, that playing playing an event, winning a Grand Slam title when you were pregnant is is quite remarkable. Um, and um, and yeah, a lot of the girls just kind of shake their heads with like, how's that even how's that even possible? And, and um, again, another one of her phenomenal uh, achievements. Uh, to, to Carl's point, I mean, like the fact that she's playing tomorrow night at seven p.m. Uh, I can't imagine the place will be empty, Carl, or there'll be a seat to be had. I mean, it's going to be phenomenal. Oh yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to that one. I mean, it it's it's a new thing altogether for uh, women who've had children to come back and to play. And uh, I mean, I guess you know, in Serena's case, her her pregnancy was dangerous. And uh, part of it is that she's been given a go-ahead that it is going to be all right for her to try to have another child. But uh, is that um, a major, I, I mean, I would think it's a major evolution, Carl. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's uh, Tatiana Maria, who's a semifinalist at Wimbledon, has two children. It was actually her birthday yesterday, and she's, she's here playing the event as well. But, you know, there's, there's quite a few players that have children on the tour, uh, on the, on the woman's tour. And it's great to see, um, we want to encourage it because we want these players to continue their careers because they, they love playing so much, you know, and with Serena, you know, we see her with her daughter after the match, she tweeted something out yesterday and it's just nice to see, you know, mothers with their, with their children. And as everybody knows, it's really important that they have the time and they, they can do it successfully on the tour. Uh, Serena, and her sister Venus, who uh, unfortunately was defeated last night, uh, they are trailblazers for women of color uh, in the sport, people of color. And uh, they come from very modest backgrounds. Uh, there's that movie out of Compton uh, in California, which is the, the neighborhood that they grew up in and how they broke into tennis, which was pretty lily white. Uh, Carl, uh, you're native Jamaica, right? Yes, that's correct. And so what are your thoughts on that aspect? Well, you know, we we were talking about it and uh you you know, we will never see in our lifetime, you know, two sisters that have come out of the ghetto in the US to be iconic tennis players. So this is, you know, it's never happened before and they had such long, you know, amazing careers you know, winning all of these Grand Slam titles. Uh, so, you know, this is it. You know, this is this is the last time they're here in Toronto. So we, we just celebrate it. You know, we'll do a big celebration for her tomorrow um, after the match. And uh, it's, it's, you know, I think it's, I think it's time to celebrate her because she's done so much for so many people. And if you, if you, as a tournament director, we get a lot of notes um, to give to her, you know, and people just, they just love Serena. Yeah, I mean, it, it is remarkable. Simon, you coach some young women. Um, one of your charges was unfortunately defeated last night. There's another young woman, Kayla Cross, who's playing doubles when today? Mm-hmm. Playing this afternoon, yep. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, we wish her the best. But in terms of, you know, you look at Serena and, and Venus, and they had a, an extremely, I would say, unconventional way of making their way in the sport. But, you know, other people have to, I guess, take a more uh, usual path. I, I, yes, yes, and no. I mean, I, what they showed and what that about that story. I can remember back when when it was when Venus was first playing that match, and she came out and she played and she competed um, and, and, and got a wall cut into an event. Showed up, beat everybody. Was super. Um, everyone just kind of turned their heads and said, "Where did where did this come from?" And it's like, well, yes, but she's actually got a sister that's younger that's probably going to be better. And it was a little bit like, well, how how did this happen? Where did this come from? So obviously there was a lot of um, investigating where it came from and how it came about. And her dad obviously was the, their dad was a huge part of this, and um, it's been their whole life. And his ways were somewhat unconventional, but um, the girls were signed on. They worked super hard. Um, they um, learned their skills um, a little bit a different way than uh, than than many others did. Um, but my goodness, I mean, to, to to the hard work and the dedication and the years that they put into this. Um, and that they can do this and be not only competitive, but like champions for a year in and year out. Serena's been doing this, as I said, for, for so many years, winning so many Grand Slam titles year in and year out, and always being at the top of the game. Um, I, you know, you, you, you've got to build some layers of, of mental toughness that, that, uh, you got to give them credit to their, to their dad for that and, and how it all came about. A bit unconventional, maybe, but I, there's, there's lots of ways to get it done if you're putting in some hard work and you have the dedication for it and you love it. It, it, it's interesting that you mention mentally tough. We've seen a, a bunch of instances of, of tennis players talking about their mental health, taking breaks because of their mental health, I guess because of the pressure. Uh, but these two women uh, seem to have uh, been pretty impervious to that, Carl. Yeah, I mean, they have really balanced lives, and uh, they're fortunate. You know, they have a really solid, you know, family life and, and they do other things. And, uh, you know, one of the things with Serene Venus, they do a lot of charitable work off the court. You know, I remember a few years ago, I was talking to Venus and, uh, I said, you know, she was in Jamaica, my native Jamaica, and it didn't go well that trip because it was a little disorganized. So I said, you know, why don't you should have told me and I would have taken you. And she said, okay, let's go. And then five minutes later, Serena called me to, to the locker room door, and she said, what's this about you and Venus going to Jamaica? She said, I'm the number one seed. You know, I get to choose where I go. So I said, well, you come too. So we went to Jamaica, and, and uh, we built a school in Jamaica through their charity. So, you know, this, this speaks volumes of the people they are, the, the, the off-court things they do, as well as the on-court. But, uh, you know, Simon, this whole issue about young women and mental health, is there too much pressure or is it a matter of a lack of balance? I mean, you know, from the outside, when you look at somebody like, say, Naomi Osaka or something, it's like this very young girl makes a fortune and has the world at her feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Tennis is a difficult game. It's a very difficult game. It's a global game. It's a game that demands a lot of you physically uh, and as, we, as as you alluded to, mentally and emotionally. It's uh, It can beat you up in a big way. And for a woman who's looking to raise a family and continue to do that and all the pressures that come with that, and um, I think that, um, um, that, yeah, like on the coaching side of this, like, the, you know, we – we coach tennis. We coach human beings first, and they, they are human beings. And the, and the, and the slant towards um, how this is affecting um, men and women in, in the sport it's um, uh, it's a, it's tough. It's very difficult. And to that's why it makes it so sensational that somebody can do this for so long and be so successful for so long. Um, that there, I'm there's no doubt. I'm sure they've had their moments of like why they continue to keep doing this, but when you love something so much and that's what you've done all your life and you truly do enjoy the competition and getting out there and doing it. Um, it's, uh, it's tough to walk away from to Carl's point earlier. It's like, everyone's sort of been thinking about this. When is she going to step aside? When is enough enough? But when you love it so much, it's just so difficult to walk away. Yeah. 
Exactly. And I remember Billie Jean King uh, saying that she had regretted an earlier decision to, you know, quote, go out at the top. Yeah. That's because great, she loved yeah. She loved it and she missed it. Uh, so, um, Carl, uh, what can we expect tomorrow and, and uh, going forward? What's the impact of this? Well, I think uh, she has a really tough match tomorrow. She plays uh, the winner of Benchich, who is a 2015 winner and a, a perennial top 10 player. So she's, she's really in tough with that level of player. You know, but she's, as we've noted, is the greatest. So you never know what can happen with Serena. So it'll be a really, really exciting match. And it's a sellout crowd. We're almost sold out. So... I expect by, you know, three o'clock today we'll be sold out. It'll be an electric atmosphere and uh, we're going to wish her the best. Okay, Simon, um, what do you expect to come from this? Yeah, I mean, like, to, to Carl's point, tomorrow, tomorrow night is going to be fantastic. I, I hope it'll be, I hope the atmosphere will be unbelievable. If she can pull out a win and do it again on Thursday, I mean, how amazing would that be? Um, and then, and then, of course, uh, in New York, um, it'll be an unbelievable show for her in New York, and um, all the stuff, all the stuff that will go with that will be will be unprecedented. It's saying the end of a of a, of a career to somebody who's um, given so much to the sport, let alone um, women's tennis. Uh, it'll be it'll be quite phenomenal, and uh, and yeah, to. Uh, um, yes, we've seen we've seen it coming. It's now happening. It is a bit of a shock that it's actually happening. It's finally happening. We're going to lose an icon, but I'm sure she'll be around the sport in many many years to come and giving back in in the ways that uh, as Carl's already spoken to. Okay, thank you so much, Simon Bartram and Carl Hale. Fascinating conversation. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Okay, we are taking another break, and when we return. Um, a- terrible, serious shortage of donated blood. And we will talk about that when we come back on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are in the midst of a severe shortage of donated blood right now. According to Canadian Blood Services, there's only three days worth of O positive and three days worth of O negative, five days of A positive and five days of A negative. So why did we get to this point and where are the regulars who always roll up their sleeves? If you want to give us a shout on this, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Rachel Solomon, a spokesperson for Canadian Blood Services. Hi, Rachel. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so what happened? Uh, is this related to the pandemic? Yes. So actually, since July 1st, our collections have been steadily decreasing. This is due to kind of a perfect storm of factors that's been added to by the loss of 31,000 donors since the start of the pandemic. And here at Canadian Blood Services, we know that summer is a challenging time for our collections. But since this is the first summer since 2019, where there are no or very few restrictions on travel and activity, people in Canada are just kind of getting out and enjoying the return to the pre-pandemic activities, summer travel, hanging out with their friends and their families. So they're not making the time or they're just forgetting to come in and donate. And we've seen this big dip in donors over the summer. Um, We do currently have 57,000 open appointments that must be filled before the end of August across Canada. So we're asking everybody, if you're a new donor, a returning donor, please come out, book your appointment and donate. Uh, Rachel, uh, there was quite a bit of backlash online uh, because Canadian Blood Services removed the mask mandate and there were people who said that they were very surprised by that and they felt uncomfortable with it and were cancelling their appointments. How how big a factor was that? Um, well, although masks are no longer required, they're welcome in our environments and they're available to anybody that chooses to wear one. Um, we are a unique organization where we provide life-saving products to hospitals, but we're not a hospital or a healthcare setting. So as a community setting, we were able to shift from the mandatory to the optimal measures in the recent months since we've seen the restrictions eased in many other community venues. But um 
We do continue to ensure that surgical masks and N95s are available to our staff, volunteers, visitors, and donors, anybody who wants one. Um, and I'd encourage any potential donors that are maybe a little bit wary of this to visit blood.ca to view all of our wellness measures in place at our donation event. How big a factor do you think that was, though? Do you think that that was a key to losing all those donors? Well, there's various reasons why we've lost donors. Um, I'm not sure the big impact of the masking, but we've seen a lot of loss of donors um, since July 1st before it was even announced. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Mike in Toronto. Hi, Mike. Hello, Libby. I um, tried to book an appointment to give blood today. Uh, All the clinics were booked, which I find very encouraging. I was able to get an appointment uh, for 10.30 a.m. at one of the downtown spots. But um, at first I was thinking, well, why is there a shortage when the clinics are fully booked? But, of course, the pandemic had a great deal to do with that, the masking, the restrictions, et cetera. But I find it, it is encouraging to see that people are stepping up and the clinics are getting heavily booked, and I hope that continues uh, in, in the near future. Hey, that, that, that is good to hear, and you're okay with um, getting your blood taken while a lot of people are unmasked? I don't care if I have to wear a mask or not. That's that's a minor thing. The main thing is blood supply is low. We all have to chip in. Okay. Thank you for that, Mike. Yeah. Well, uh, there you go, Rachel. So um, is is that the situation around the province where some of the clinics are actually full? Yes. So actually, since Friday, we have seen a massive uptick in our appointments. And that's all thanks to our generous blood donors booking and keeping their appointments. So I just want to say thank you to anybody that's booking their appointment, like the last person. So thank you so much. Okay. And um, out of all these shortages on blood types, uh, I guess the one for O is the most severe because that's used the most, right? Correct. Yes. Our um, O blood types are used in most trauma situations where there's not time to type somebody's blood. Um, So that one's usually needed the most as our universal donor. Mm-hmm. And is that is that both O positive and O negative or just one of them? That's both of them. We need both of them all the time. Of course, the O negative can donate to anybody and the O positive can donate to all positive blood types. But we do currently still need all blood types. So we're encouraging anybody, book your appointment, no matter your blood type. Okay. On that note, we wrap things up. Thank you so much, Rachel Solomon. Amazing. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. The throne speech coming up momentarily, and we will have more on what actually comes down tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.